0: Nine twelve.
1: Instead of
2: But we can discuss that later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Alright, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. That's
1: Coming to you direct from our super secret studio. Hello, this is Washington for Beautiful People on Deep State Radio. I'm your host, Emily Brandwin, CIA spy girl on Twitter. And it's kind of exciting because I'm broadcasting from the East Coast today and I'm back in my hometown or quasi-hometown. And what's even more exciting is I am joined by an actual good friend, not just somebody I met on Twitter. I mean, I did meet him on Twitter, but now we're actual friends and it's very exciting and he's a very, very, very cool background which I will say a little bit about, and I'm not going to let him speak until I actually say his name. But you've seen him on MSNBC a lot. He's written for Newsweek, the New York Daily News, uh, a bunch of other things as well. There's another magazine which he can tell me about because I've just forgotten it. He's a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. And even more exciting is he wrote a killer book about his story, How to Catch a Russian Spy, because he was a double agent you know him you love him it's my friend navid jamali hey navid
0: hey emily i gotta tell you when they told me that i was going to be on a podcast with the fbi's top analyst on china i was so excited uh you know i love the fbi Yeah. you know i've had my mixed reviews about the cia but oh the no FBI, cia sucks. Say, it's terrible it's just Horrible. I mean, who'd ever want to work for them? I mean, it's just oh like the God. worst place. It's, and
1: they hire anybody. I, mean, I
0: think I know, and I think that just gave it a one-star. I think that's where it ended up. So, you know, I'm just saying.
1: Yeah, I mean, I heard the CIA even hired an improv comic once, which is fucking crazy.
0: Oh, God, wait a we'll let Let's anyone in.
1: Anybody. The standards are so low. <laughs> well, I... Was- <laughs> As you can tell, we have some banter, because I've known Naveed for a few years now, and I was actually introduced to you through a mutual friend of ours, Catherine, and That's I, right. I remember she was like, can I introduce you to my friend Naveed? He's a double agent. I was like, what the hell is this guy? And then you messaged me on Twitter, like, hey, I'm a double agent. And literally, that was your <laughs> intro to me. <laughs>
2: Surprise! <laughs> you, had no,
1: you literally had no game whatsoever. You know that you literally like no, I'm no. a double agent. I'm like, What the fuck? Who is this joker?
0: What is that? Yeah, what is this? Wait, okay. As I I'll, you know, as a son of two immigrants, the joke is of course that when I told my parents I was a double agent, they're like, What? You couldn't be a triple agent? Double is only good enough for you. That's just like the that's like a bare minimum. What do you not do the extra extra homework assignments too? Is this like what <laughs> it's not how we raised you?
1: <laughs> we raised you to be a triple agent.
0: He quadruple. Look at look at look at Joe Shaman down the street. He he's got like uh he's got at least five five of those things under himself. He's going for
1: Well, what's been exciting, though, Naveed, for, I just said your name like it's very official. What's been exciting, Naveed? What's been lovely for me is, like, I think we come into contact all the time with different folks on social media. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people kind of come in and leave your, you know, leave your little orbit. And I love that it's extended on, and I consider you a real friend. And we've talked about things that have nothing to do with espionage. And, and one of the reasons I, I think... I really respect and really admire you. Is you, you're really your social activism, which I love to talk about later as well, and it's sure. something that has really—I've always held you up on a high esteem because I know it's truly who you are and it's in your core and in your being. Uh, so I think it's important we talk about that later. But more importantly, you've got the best first date story ever. I know you're married, but if you weren't, I would say this is the best story ever for a first date. And I want to tell, I want you to tell everybody a little bit about how it happened, how you became a double agent for
0: the FBI. Oh, goodness. You know, <clears throat> there is, I'm sure you know, you know we joke about espionage, we joke about the intelligence community.
2: It is serious
0: business, but I think that just like with anything that is serious, you have to have a little bit of dark humor. It's just one of those things that carries you through. And for me, uh, humor is very much part of my DNA, and um, when I was first introduced to the the man who would eventually become my, my Russian case officer, a man named Ole Kulikov, um, you know, uh, when uh, a case officer, I'll give you the serious side first when a case officer is meeting the mass at a source uh, for the first time, there's a level of trepidation on his or her part, and certainly, you know, they have to assess, and there's, and very much is what the Russians did with me. For my part, I was a 28-year-old kid, and I mean really a kid, like the you know maturity, probably a 15-year-old boy in a lot of regards. So
1: same thing um, as you
0: are and, now. Yeah. No, right? I, I'm age maybe six months in terms of maturity. Okay, perfect. Uh, so yeah, I, I met this man, and I could tell that he was uncomfortable. Um, we met in my parents' office, and there's a whole story of my parents and, and the Russians and the FBI would been gone for decades at this point. And, uh, I hey, I'm going to stop defense. you
1: right. Hey, I want to stop you because I think it's important that you talk about your parents and why the Russians sure. were in your orbit in the beginning. And kind of right. go go back to your origin story at first.
0: <laughs> okay, so my parents are—they're uh, both immigrants. My mother is French. My father is Pakistani. Uh, they moved to the United States in, in the late '60s, and they sort of met in this improbable, you know. Uh, sort of chance encounter in New York City and they ended up getting married and, and building a family. was the American dream and, and, and they also built a small business and that small business eventually morphed into uh, a defense contracting company and it was located in, in midtown New York uh, off of Columbus Circle. And because it was in New York, there, there just weren't that many defense contracting companies in the, the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and in 1989, uh, they had an office on uh, mid-floor of a standard apartment-filled uh, office building in, in, in the town. And a man walked in and essentially said that he wanted to procure some information. That's what the company did. They supplied books and, and reports and, and the like. And he wanted to buy some books. And he showed my dad uh, can a I, list of
2: Can a I just, of books. Pa- can ahead,
1: just pause you? So when you say defense contractor, it, it was how I read it and I could have read it wrong. Your family had like a bookstore but they had, was it open source information that they were able to gather? Because they weren't working in a SCIF, which... That's
2: gotcha. right. And you can yeah, explain SCIF so,
1: as well,
0: if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so yeah, yes and no. it was not We're not talking about, like, high-side or top-secret or secret stuff. But it was not a bookstore in the traditional sense that you would think of like a Barnes & Noble. Uh, and they didn't get walk-in traffic. They didn't have books on shelves. What they were doing was... Uh, a perfect example is if you are... Uh, a you know, a students at Annapolis or, the, or any of the war colleges, when you attend those universities or those, those colleges, uh, the governor buys your books. So, my parents, our company, would actually fill the contract to supply uh, the universities, State Department libraries, Air Force libraries uh, with actual books. So, it was, a, it was purely at this point responding to government contracts. And it was not a bookstore where you'd ever get foot traffic. So, like okay. having someone walk into the office. And that in itself was kind of weird. Okay. So this guy walked in, and um, but again, but they were dealing with you know the military, and they get you know all sorts of radar reports and things, targeting maps and stuff. Um, so they, the guy walked in, and he just like, there's a list of books, and he says he's from United Nations. Shows my data card that says Colonel Alex Homakin, Soviet mission to the UN, and then takes the card back, and you know says he works on nuclear disarmament. And my dad made some jokes to him about how business going, is it's always busy. And uh, my my dad like, should we ship the books? And the guy's like, no, um, I'll pick him up. Don't worry about it. And with that, he just leaves. And with that, like, oh, this is, this is great. I just got a contract for the for the United Nations, and I didn't have to do anything. And he goes back to work, so doesn't think anything about it. And like, literally, Emily, fifteen minutes later, um, two more men walk in. Uh, they identify themselves as FBI special agents, and um, they say the man who was just dealing with a Soviet intelligence officer. And they want to know what he what he wanted. And my guy they just want to buy some books. Like, you can't get anything for, like, you know, there's this nothing nefarious. So he gives the FBI a list of books, uh, of you know, books on titles like weapons control and nuclear disarmament. And, and um, he's like, what do you want me to do? And he's like, well, get him his book. He's like, OK. And then one, he's like, well, if he gets back in touch with you, we'll be in touch. And they left and thank him for his cooperation. And unbelievably, that started a relationship that lasted and nine until so I got involved in 2005. So this was a long-term thing. And, and oh, by the way, when the Soviet Union collapsed, there was only a year where the KGB, this guy was a KGB officer, stopped coming to my parents' office, and instead the GRU mm-hmm. replaced the KGB. So there was no change. It was just they were looking for the same exact stuff, same relationships, same people, in, you know, Russian war footing towards the United States, even though the Cold War had ended. And I think, just know, that's something agree. that is exactly right. So...
1: What's interesting is, I love that court. the FBI was surveilling the Russian, and that's how they knew. And that that Russian... They were around. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that the Russian had to have had really poor tradecraft that he yeah. basically... Yeah. This whole time, he's leading the FBI there, and as you know, in a Somebody in the CI, whenever you go to any of these kinds of meetings or a potential, somebody could be a potential source, the first thing you do is you run a surveillance detection route. And you're not running it to outrun surveillance. You're doing it because you want to see if you have surveillance. And if you do, you just abort your mission. You don't try to, you know, as they see in the movies, like outrun them or anything like that. You're literally just seeing if you're clean. And if you're clean, you go to your meeting. But if you have surveillance, you skip it. And so, sensibly, this wasn't the best case officer because he literally let the FBI to your folks.
2: That's right.
0: And the funny thing about him is he probably ended up becoming a general or, you know, <laughs> commanding some. And so now I, I just often wonder, like, what happens then when he reads about this, exactly what you just said, like how he ended up allowing uh, a multi-decade FBI operation to run against the Soviets and the Russians. It, it can't be a great resume builder now. Hopefully he's revived. Um <laughs> You're right. Like, and and this is a funny thing that I think a lot of people don't understand is that something so innocuous as as that, like, look at the ramifications it can have. Literally, right? I mean, yeah. You
2: know,
0: that's the other thing that you learn about this is that there's the details and the small things, and not the and the small things are the things that can oftentimes um, make an entire operation come undone.
1: So they, so then, cut to you. So okay. How did it happen for you? Now that we know that your parents, your parents so this story. The first time I. Yes.
0: Yeah. So for me, I, you know, I, again, as, an, as growing up as first immigrants, I was always like, Hey, how do I, uh, how, what's my identity? Um, am I, am I Canadian, my French, am i American, what does that mean? And, you know, I always felt this need to be as over American, like really. And I think in the, in the age of Trump, I think a lot of people can understand what that, what yeah. that means even more so now. Um, But I really felt this need to sort of, hey, I'm American, um, and that's what I want to identify with. And, you know, for me, there was no, nothing more American than joining the military. Um, And I dabbled with it and ended up going to, ended up in computer science in college. But after September 11th, you know, as a New Yorker, as someone who's this sort of weird eclectic combination of ethnic, ethnicities and cultures and races and, you know, um, besides the obvious attack on our homeland, you know, the attack in New York and this place that was accepting of diversity, um, it really affected me. And it sort of became, like I looked at my own life as, you know, when I was a parent, everyone saying before kids and everything after kids, but certainly in a lot of ways, uh, everything before September 11th than everything afterwards. Absolutely. And I thought I would join the military and I applied on the way and like it is with a lot of these things, even though I a good showing, I, I didn't get in. And... um to become an intelligence officer, and I was sort of told, hey, if you really want to do this, don't give up. Apply again, just show some growth. And I really, honest to God, canceled this idea that if I applied again, perhaps if I helped the FBI, I had this long relationship with my parents, to their business, and, and the Russians. But maybe if I helped the FBI with the Russians, no shit that I, they would write me a lot of recommendations for my <laughs> subsequent application.
2: Stranger so that, things have happened.
0: Honestly, that's what I approached the FBI. I said, Hey you guys can help me with the Russians, when you write me a letter of recommendation. They looked at they looked at me like I, I mean you've been on the other side of, the, of that conversation. Can you imagine I mean it, I, imagine these are people dealing you know, they're asking for like, hey, I've never paid my taxes or like, I you know, I've been transporting livestock across state lines illegally. I can only totally imagine what they're asking for help with and it's probably not a letter of recommendation to you know, from the military. So but there we are.
1: So did, who, so this guy, how did this guy, he found you, his name Oleg? Yeah. He, I feel that's like right. we're talking the Americans right now. Like all these names sound like we're, Kerry Russell's going to be starring in your movie. <laughs> so he approached you. He, had he been going to the bookstore already?
0: Yeah. Okay. So, so. that that's let's, let's, let's a great thing. So the Russians, um, you know, they've been coming to my parents' office for since 1989 like, and but they're diplomats, right? So they're, yeah. they're, they're intelligence officers. They're, they were all military officers, and they were all holding official posts at at the Soviet and the Russian missions to the United Nations. So they're all listed. In fact, Oleg's name appears. If you look at the UN blue book, you can see them. They all sat on the, of the military to me, I say this because they all had diplomatic immunity, yeah. but then they also they stayed in the United States for two or three years. So every two or three years, a new one would come in, and that new one would make contact my time um, So he's been coming to the office uh, for a little bit of time. Um, Oleg actually, unlike his predecessors, like the other guys were cult- cultured and, you know, sort of suave and well-spoken and they spoke English very well. We talked about the Americans. First time at Oleg, I saw this guy in his, like a really cheap suit with his, like, weird, uneven mustache that, like, you know, got soup stuck in it. And, like... He's, he just looked like he
1: sounds hot. I don't
0: know. You, yeah, used shoe salesman, maybe, yeah. you know, like, like if you need to buy uneven shoes. I don't know, like he, see that's what he looked like. But there was a, he also like walked ramrod straight. I remember watching him walk up a hill, and it was just like he flew up that hill. So even though the clothes were rough and he was unassuming, um, you got the sense that this was someone who was a, a no no joke kind of guy. Um, so yeah, so he came uh, to my parents' office one day to pick up a book, and my dad introduced us. And he looked like, who the fuck is this guy? And so you know, and I was like, no, no, maybe if I crack a, you know, I like to crack jokes. So maybe if I crack a joke to Oleg, um He'll, you know, he'll lighten up. And so I'm looking at him, and I go, hey, Oleg, can I tell you know, I, I can tell you a joke? And he's like, okay. And I said, you know, there's a There's two old men standing online line in in Red Square. This is right after Glassdoor. And they're standing in line in Red Square for their daily serving of guru abortion. And they're like, I don't understand. We're supposed to, shit's supposed to be better. Like, why are we standing online? line? And one of them goes, you know what? This is bullshit. Hold my spot online, line. I'm going to go shoot Gorbachev. And he goes, and then a few hours later, he comes back. And he goes, what happened? Did you shoot Gorbachev? He goes, no, there was a line for that, too. And I, like, like that's the punchline, right? And like you know, normally people chuckle. I look at Oleg, and his eyes, like Emily, they got like as big as dinner plates. And he goes, "Oh, I don't know anything about. I don't know anything about that," because he probably thought that I was trying to get him to kill the Russian government. And I, if I if I recorded him saying something like, "Oh yeah, Gorbachev's an asshole," like Indeed. that is something that you did could be used that. against them, right?
1: But, Navid, you have to know your audience when you make a joke. I mean, I seriously. This is the first role of, like, joke club. You got to know your audience. This is killing me. You literally – I was like, you should be killing with this audience. But you really, like, almost killed with this audience.
0: Yeah. Yeah, right. Exactly. Oh, I literally this, almost got him killed. I, you
1: literally – oh, that's so sad. I'm sorry.
0: I know, right?
1: I know. Oh, your material. Right, so probably – It's, it's so tough So probably if you
0: go – yeah, so this is it. So if you go to like improv like courses or you go to the farm with the CIA, it's probably the first thing they say is no, your audience and probably don't open with this joke around Russian spy.
1: You you pretty That's much probably. don't open with a Gorbachev joke. Yeah. It's probably not your best thing. Maybe a little <laughs> maybe a little crowd work in the beginning, like, hey, how many of y'all from You don't from go Moscow? straight for the
0: Gorbachev? You never do that. Right. Yeah, you seriously. No one ever goes full Gorbachev. You no, one. You gotta no. Work you never up go, go full Gorbachev.
1: You got to work up. You have to earn that joke. So, That's right. so he doesn't <laughs> laugh. He thinks your joke sucks. But.
0: yes, yeah. But the, the curious happened. He left. And, you know, the Russians would come back. Emily, the whole thing is, like you said, with, you know, the pre-plans they had to do to make sure there's time for to make sure they're not being followed. Um, it would take months between meetings, sometimes half a year. <clears throat> something curious happened. He came back a few weeks later and it was clear he wanted to start a relationship. And that became the basis to to really get things going. I had I realized that, you know, like you're talking about know your audience. I realized that I I had an audience. I had access. And now the question is how do you connect? How do you build that relationship? And the Russians weren't interested in me driving the ship. They wanted them this had to be about, um, them controlling it not me me controlling it they'd be done that's
1: that's very typical in in espionage whoever is recruiting or handling that's how you establish just the hierarchy in a relationship you always want to have control and so i'm i'm assuming and you can you can confirm i'm assuming that he was the one who in the beginning would always set the meetings and say this is where we're going to meet this is the time this is the location because they always want to know that they know exactly where everything is. You have the control, and you always, you always have the upper hand. And that way, he's also training, quote unquote, training you. Although you were obviously a double agent, but he's training in his mind the agent to respond to commands, to respond to tasking, and that, to, I mean, and to feel exactly. like he's an employee. That's
0: right, and, and that's why you know it's funny jumping ahead to, to Trump and, and like when I say collusion, and, and you'll appreciate this that collusion to me as always in the way that it was defined um equals parity and it's exactly as you said there is never parity to the case officer and his or her asset it's always meant to be hierarchy and you know like everything whether, and it wasn't just the russians it was the fbi were the same way i'd write yep. fbi case officers too um everything was about leverage like even whoever got up from the, the table first like everything was always about um, you know, how do you uh, push through um, and, and who has the upper hand? And, like, the slightest thing could be about leverage. And, and you're right, like, from shooting the meetings to even stupid stuff that did, might seem irrelevant.
1: What did they want you to report on? Because before, your parents were obviously giving over materials. Like, what did Ooh. they think that you had access to that maybe your parents didn't?
0: Because – so. I, to be perfectly straight, I think what people are, what people are, uh, should understand is that the Russians here, they weren't about just stealing or collecting intelligence. They were about recruiting assets. And this, you know, at this point, they had been coming to my parents' office since 1989. They knew I was applying for the military.
2: Um,
0: but yeah. even before they knew that, they just wanted to recruit a spy. And this was not about me going in and stealing a particular thing for them, and then I was done. This was like, we get someone who's, you know, I was in in my late 20s at the time, we get someone relatively young, they have a whole career, we can manipulate that career, we can get them to go where we want. This could be decades of someone being in sensitive areas that can collect intelligence for us. Who knows what they're going to have access on? So really, their focus was recruiting me,
1: not the impact I had at the moment. What I love uh, that you explained is that I think in the movies when we watch espionage, everything happens you know, within two hours, and you're like, oh, they just recruited someone. This is <laughs> fantastic, and the show's over. But really, when you recruit an asset, and especially you can, this really exemplifies it, they're playing the long game. They're thinking, this guy isn't even in the military, but he will be. If we start him now, they're really thinking ahead. And I think we've seen that also when all the Russians like five or six years ago the Anna Chap when Anna Chapman and all those folks huh? got got wound up they had truly played the long game. A lot of them had been here for 10, 12 years, even longer. That's right. And they were truly embedded in because the Soviets got it. They got that they had to they had to be patient. And we're I think just as a by our nature we're impatient and I think it really speaks to what they were thinking.
0: That's right. That's right. And I think that it's really hard for Americans to understand uh, this, that, you know, um, you know, the Russians, like they're collecting, they like to collect people.
2: Yeah. I mean,
0: that's the way they look at this. They don't, they don't have, ne- they don't have a need for you today, but they might have a need for you tomorrow or a week or a month or a year down the line. So why not build a network of people that we can have that we know are trusted. So, you know, it took them two years to get to the point where they were telling me what intelligence they wanted me to collect. I mean, this was, so this was a, uh, a, a very slow dance. And it was two years of essentially um, the Russians assessing it. And I can tell you a little aside, getting back to Trump land, you know, um, when you look at Carter Page, and, and I'll, I'll say this now, uh, I believe the Russians tried to recruit Carter Page. And we've seen the transcripts from the, the first trial in 2015 where the Russians are, they, the FBI released transcripts of the Russians talking about Page and they're basically saying, guys, fucking nuts. Um, I think that that's, a, a, believe it or not, there is a standard here. And if you're not, and if you're someone who's not manageable, you may not be worth recruiting. Even if you do have access to graded information, it's like a risk-reward, right? There's got to be an ROI. There, and uh, I think that Carter Page... I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: I should say, what you were saying is, is really accurate. First of all, if they had they tried to recruit Carter Page, they deserved Carter Page because he's just a nut. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can have him. But it, that's true. It's one of the process when you're in. Just to give people some insight into, you know, recruiting when, when somebody, when a case officer, ops officer is recruiting somebody, it is about making sure they can take direction. And you'll hear okay. people. And in the CIA, we don't do honeypots. And you'll hear it with the Russians. Oh yeah, use sex for, sex for leverage. And the reason that we don't do that is because you lose control. And ultimately it's all about control, always knowing that you okay. have that control over your asset. And when sex gets involved or any of that, it ends up muddying the water. So you don't have that. And so it's, it's right. truly in with Carter, I, you can get it. If I know you wrote, you wrote a piece about it like a year ago in Newsweek. So I encourage people to also read that too, because it's an interesting perspective. I know that you, you've shared that and some, it's it kind of let the lit the Twitterverse on fire because some people agreed, some people didn't agree, and it was a healthy debate about it, but it really does point out the whole issue of control. So at this point, you're also, so you're you're meeting with the Russians, and now you're also meeting with the FBI to tell them what the Russians were asking about. So you're getting yeah. it from both sides. You're seeing how the Russians operate, and you're seeing how the FBI operates. Are you, are they okay. training you to do, you know, surveillance detection, or are you just kind of doing whatever is being told like are you getting some of that training
0: too yeah i mean they sent me to a school for t- no they did nothing i was completely flying by the seat of my game. there was Sorry. there was no training the fbi was just i was just the best way i can tell what the fbi trained me is i'd be like hey this oleg haven't gotten they'd be like well what do you think i'm like no i, I don't want to <laughs> think about this i want to know like can you just tell me i'm like well what if you if you're a Russian, I'm like, don't, don't play this bullshit with me. Like just tell me if it got Like
1: um, and I don't think they if it's a yes. <laughs> right.
0: They're like, what if we play three times? Sons of bitches. Um you know, this really was, Emily, um, a unique operation. I understood this much later. In that like, there was some guidance, but the FBI's only like sort of command to me was there's three of them. One is um do this as if you were a real spy. The second one is under no circumstances was I able to drink with the Russians. And third, the only thing they couldn't help me with was my taxes, the FBI. Uh, I don't really know what that means, but um <laughs> but that's the that's the three pieces of guidance I had. So you know,
2: so I have
0: to try to figure out what it means to be a spy and like what how does a spy ask and like, why do they do this stuff? And do you're do you- talking about honeypots. like that's a bit you now how do you figure out what's your motivation?
1: And that's ultimately with espionage when you're recruiting somebody, and I'm sure the Russians were doing that with you as well, or trying to gain gain yep. it a little bit. Going, okay, what you do is you try to spot somebody's vulnerabilities, and whatever that vulnerability is, you then exploit it, and that's how you end up. It helps with the recruitment. You know, maybe if it was you and I was trying to recruit you, and be like, Navi needs money for school, like this is his motivation. That's right. And then I can appease to that saying, hey, you know, you've got some information that's really of value. I'd love to pay you for it. And just, and you know, you can help out for school. And then that's how you start creating that relationship. And then you add what happened with you is they end up adding more layers to it. Like, hey, now we're going to meet at this X spot on this X day. And they're doing that subliminal training of it as well. How did it all end for you? Right. How did it, what was the last like straw where you're like, okay, this is my last meeting with Oleg?
0: So, yeah, hey, so exactly saying, um, you know, uh, just one step before I get that, like, it was about creating a persona for me, so I found this great acronym that he wrote down uh, called Might, Money, Ideology, yep. Forge, and Ego, and essentially, you know, as you know, those are the four pillars of motivation yep. for people to do this. And for me, I created a fictitious sort of persona with Oleg where I was like, hey, I'm really smart, I'm smart in the FBI, they can't catch me, and I just want to shit out of body. I don't care about ideology, and, you know, he wasn't going to coerce me, and it was Oleg. It wasn't like you know, wasn't like uh, sex was not a sex was not something that we were we we're talking about. Neither was coercion. Like it was, it was really. Although that men's, men's warehouse jacket that he wore a lot, you know, it did it did at a certain point to look at. How much like, money did you get? Extensively, um, how much
1: did you get? Over for the
0: questions? over the course of three years, it was a little more than a hundred thousand so dollars. But
1: wait,
0: remember the three the three things that I told you about that the FBI warned me. Oh. Um, we were like. So I'd get the money from the Russians in cash, I'd give it to the FBI. The FBI a few days later would give me the same amount of money in cash back. Of course I'm signing for it. Of and course. I'm happy to report I'm happy to report two things. One, that we were fully cost recoverable and that and secondly that we, the Russians were paying us to run an operation, a successful operation against them. So I am pretty proud of that second part. Um That's but hilarious. because it was cash right, it, because it was cash in the FBI, I reported on my taxes. As because I was like, there's no way that I'm taking money from the FBI and like not reporting that. So in the end, you know, you think about how much money it is over the course of three years. So Look, like I'm not sneezing at it, but there's a lot of work and a lot of risk and, you know, um, yeah, it was there was definitely that part of it. I, and to be honest with you, I would have done this for free because the the excitement of doing it was, was pretty uh, pretty gratifying. Um,
1: I have a question: When the Russians paid you, did you have to sign anything for the Russians?
0: <laughs> That's a great question. So I'm a smart,
1: Naveed. Of course, it's a great you question. Are smart.
0: It's almost like you're leading me you to know, like, yeah. Um, so you know the persona Emily, like you know, I have to be the disguise officer. You can you can disguise how you look and maybe how you even sound, but like a lot of your personality traits and exactly so they're looking for motivation. Like, why does he want, why does this kid want to spy for us? Why does he want to help us? And so creating this persona of like this young, brash, arrogant money hungry kid was what I did to meet their profile. And I did it by watching movies, Michael Mann. And like I love spy game with Robert Redford and, and nice. Brad Pitt. And I would lift in the dialogue. So, you about selling receipts, and the Russians are so goddamn cheap. Like, every time we so would agree to price, they would always try to underpay me, and I'd be like, no, you paid promise it. So you know, money was always a big thing. They always wanted to take, wanted to give me less than they promised for. Well, I said, everything's about leverage. And for me, you know, I was, the motivation for me, speaking with the Russians, Emily, really remember, was about getting that letter of recommendation for the Navy, not about actually getting money from the Russians. So I had to create this whole other, like motivation. <laughs> so that the Russians saw that. Like I wasn't going to go to Oleg and be like, I need five more meetings with you because like, I need five more meetings. I finally get my letter of recommendation. <laughs> I like, mean, you know, I have to find some other reason, Right. So I did the whole thing. I was watching movies and, um, I'd list dialogue. And there was one point where Oleg is sitting with me at Vinny's Clam Chat. They had the worst case in the restaurant.
2: Right? Oh Jesus. Um,
0: in, in, in Long Island, New York. And, uh, he goes, he gives me, he reaches into his jacket and a you know, big white envelope of cash and he gives it to me. He goes, uh, Would you mind sending me, signing this, this receipt?
2: Huh.
0: And I look at the receipt and I look at him and there's a line. There's a scene from Miami Vice um, where the two detectives go down to Haiti and they meet with a drug lord. And the drug like, guy is like, Hey, how do I know you're not cops? And of course they're both cops but their response is to say, how do you know we're not cops? How do you know? You, how do we know you're he's not a cop? The the FBI? So I say to Oleg, are you fucking kidding me? How do I know you're not a cop? How do I know you're not the FBI? How do I know you're not, you know, what are you? How do I know you are who you say you are? And he looks at me like completely shocked. And he goes, show me your fucking ID. Show me your goddamn wallet. And he's like, "Oh," huh. And he takes those <laughs> wallets. He's like opening his these pictures and he shows me his UN ID. And I'm like, okay, okay. And he takes, and they take out the receipt back, and it never has to be a receipt ever again. Do you know? Um, and, but, but do you know
1: why they ask you to do the receipt?
0: Of course, they're going to use it as like you know, I blackmail probably. No, 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 I,
1: no, 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 no. And I didn't mean, this is a trick question. Um, no. In the CIA, I'm assuming it's similar because we have very similar tradecraft. One of the reasons you do it is to make it more established as a business relationship. So you signing your name first at the CIA, so we have proof that ostensibly you have proof that you've paid an asset and asset has paid you i mean you could obviously forge a name which i don't recommend anybody do but it's another way of solidifying a business relationship because especially in the u.s when you're working with an asset you always want to make sure that that line is super super clear especially when you talk like honey pots or you're recruiting someone who's of the opposite sex it's another way of solidifying that so there's absolutely no confusion whatsoever
0: I also think that with with the Russians, you're right. It wouldn't surprise me if these guys are skimming a little off the top of themselves. Absolutely. So I, think, I think part of it is also to to you know validate his superiors that he was in fact giving you the whole the whole motherload of cash. But nonetheless, Emily, you know, there's two things. One, it was like where else can you go tell a Russian spy to fuck himself, um, That's and pretty amazing. you know still so get paid. And like, that's the right thing to do. Um, and I never have to have
2: asked to be found. I was never asked to find
1: a What I think is interesting. So, after, because this all happens, and I don't expect that you'll be traveling to Moscow anytime soon. <laughs> um, no. Did, no. You, did you ever imagine, because you look at where we are now, that that experience for you and that insight would have such a strong, like, strong resonance to what's going on now? Is it? Is it just kind of weird and odd for you it's to me it would just be very surreal you
0: know it, it is i mean i remember when we i wrote the book in 2013 we started doing this it came out in 2015 um and i remember sitting in this meeting with um you know we eventually sold it to the Fox of the movie and I, I remember sitting in this room with all these people i had never done any of this stuff it was all brand new world to me and they're like this is pre-trump it's 2014 now we're talking about the good like, days. don't worry don't worry. Like in Hollywood, there are two consistent bad guys: Nazis and the and the Russians. And then, and then, look what happens. in 2016. I'll never forget that conversation. So, on one hand, as look, of course, as an American, I'm incredibly disturbed. As a capitalist, yeah, it's been okay to me, right? Like it's.
1: <laughs> it's like when I was talking to the guys who created the Americans. It, he's like, you know, we were talking. I said, "Can you imagine?" He goes, "Yeah." People ask all the time, but then he's like. It doesn't hurt our show that this is happening. Because when, they, right. cause when he, they first pitched it, people were like, "That's fucking crazy. Russians wouldn't live here undercover as Americans." And all of a sudden, it's Anna Chapman. It's all those people. Okay. Right. And then you have now you have the you know Maria Butina or Butina, however you want to say it. So it's it's interesting that it's it's very much repeating itself and it doesn't go away.
2: That's right. Do you that's think? Right. I mean,
1: do you think that we're paying? In, it's interesting, like how. I'm trying. How does it? For me, I feel like the threat is so real and it's so dire from the Russians, and I get a little bit. I mean, I am incredibly frustrated at the administration for really believingly ignoring it. Ostensibly, I think just because it it behooves them and it just you know it it bolsters their you know the administration. What do you think, having dealt with the Russians?
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm. You know, look. 2005 to 2009, I assume it. Um, already Russia was deprioritized. I was working with FBI agents that like hand me down cars. Um, you know they would they would complain when the NYPD, which you know there's a snowstorm that they had to shut down the office and they're like you know now the Russians know that we're not coming into work and declare that you know declare that not essential personnel, but like you know it, already like there was that pre-trump um even until obama like no one thought about the Russians, nope. and i saw it like from the russian standpoint what americans don't understand is we might have thought that the cold war was over and that russia was no longer a threat They
2: didn't but think so.
0: russia right right russia thought america believed and certainly acted like america was their number one threat and so what they're doing is they're they're putting more and more effort into this they're looking for more and more ways to be aggressive they're looking for what the line is that they can push right i mean when it comes to intelligence, again as you know, in CIA, you know if you collect intelligence, it has it only has value for it, in large part if the other side doesn't know that you have it, right? So they're doing stuff, they're looking for that line, but they're not looking to make this stuff public. I don't think a, Americans appreciate how much effort the Russians expend in other countries, frankly, but the Russians specifically spend in running operations here in the United States. And even twenty sixteen, like you know, even if Hillary Clinton had won, Russia would still remain a top threat to this country. And, you know, of course, Donald Trump is going to minimize this because of what it says about him. But we're also in this position where we have a serious threat and there are serious events that happen. I mean, no one's going to doubt that the Russians were involved in meddling in 2016 and probably a lot more than just meddling. Well,
1: one person and, will doubt it, but,
0: you know, it's true, Right, one but- th- i was publicly i'm sure he knows that he knows
2: he doesn't want
1: to admit it well and it's also like you
0: know
1: oh sorry i was gonna say um no no this is is the only time when you work in intel when you work intelligence there's you know 16 17 different intelligence agencies now i always lose track yeah we never agree it's like bad siblings everyone disagrees everyone's trying to you know one-up each other it's the only time i remember that everybody agreed Everyone said, it's the Russians. This is what they're doing. The threat is real. It is dire. And it will continue unless we do something. And everyone's like, it's scary. We need to do something. And Trump's like, eh, eh, it's okay. And it's, to me, that was, that should have been the wake-up call. Of course it wasn't. Who do you, when you look at 2020 down the road, who do you think is best fitted to do this? Who do you think has been impressive to you from maybe cybersecurity or from their uh, how they view this threat? I mean, I think they all do, but who are you excited about that you think could really so, combat this? I, I'm
0: biased. I'm biased. I have a special allegiance to Eric Swalwell. Uh, Eric, great. And I, I've known Eric. He's a, he's a great, great man, great dude, just a, a real down-to-earth um, person, but also just someone who I think when we talk about intelligence next you know, there, there's, there's a partisanship, and of course, we're all partisans, right? I mean, we're all disturbed with what I mean, every day, every hour, with what Donald Trump is doing. But there's another part of this, which is like, you know, we're supposed to, as a country, rise above things like national, things like national security. Um, Eric, uh, I first met Congressman Swalwell when he invited me a couple of years ago to come down and, and actually present a brief to the House Intel Committee. Uh, I was, I, so I came down, I, I met you know, Jackie Sears and, and, and Adam Schiff, and yeah, I had a really good conversation with him, and you know, there was uh, talking about intelligence and talking about the threat, and it was it's good and the only people that weren't there were the republicans um it was right before nunez They never none of them showed up they were invited and you know again it just shows the nature of the partisanship and i was brought out not to talk about trump i don't know anything firsthand about you know russia and trump um you know again i was 2005 2009 and you know it just the state of affairs i think it tells you that like, we won't even talk about this threat in an objective way so I felt I owe uh, an gratitude and allegiance because of what Eric did here. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy that he's running. I think he's bringing some great ideas, and, and I think that there's a lot of people running now. And I'll, I'll say this: that you know, I, it's frustrating when we look at the Democratic Party that there's just not a lot of movement. You know. we need turnover. We need new ideas. We need new people coming in, and you know, it's no secret. You come into Congress or the Senate, and you're there for 10, 20, 30 years. And it's just, at a certain point, it's like, how do we get new ideas? How do we get people, elected officials, that connect to the, the population, the changing demographics? And um, I think that for a lot of Democrats, like, candidly, you know, running for office is, is a way to sort of highlight who they are. Um, and, you know, it's also a way to start getting some real ideas out there. Um, but we, we need that. I mean, everything that Trump is, we should be reacting by proposing real progressive ideas. And, and yeah, I, mean, I, I just hope that the, whoever comes out of this is like going to really be able to nice people and not just some really warm sort of milk toast. Um,
1: I agree ideals. with you about, it's funny. I was yesterday, I was walking around the Russell Rotunda and, you know, seeing all the different congressmen and it was just interesting because I thought some of them had been there for a while and I, was curious if they were some of them when I won't name names, I felt have gotten a little complacent and didn't really reflect the constituents anymore. And I think it's easy to get into that. So I was excited for the last election. We saw this new blood coming in. And one of the reasons I like Swalwell is I feel like he speaks in a very contemporary way that really reflects sort of this new wave of you know, yeah. progressive thought, but not in a way that I think feels threatening. I mean, I like that one of his core tenants that he's leading with is gun control and he's making yeah. it really a pillar of what he's talking about and i think it's it's bold it's needed i don't know if it's enough but i'm excited about it and also he's very real there's something about him i've had a couple i think i told you this story i it was very funny he was complaining about Someone, two people had mocked his hair. Someone said they liked it, some they didn't. So he tweeted something very funny, like, oh, I I can't win. You know, some people like my hair, some people don't like my hair. And I tweeted something snarky. I'm like, hey, Eric, welcome to being a woman. This happens all the fucking time. I said a little bit nicer. But he DM'd me... And I mean, then I was like, oh, I probably shouldn't have been like that sassy. And then he DM me. He's like, hey, I'm so sorry that you had to go through this. I was like, hey, it's okay. I'm on social media. I'm very callous to all this. And, you know, I once wore an eye patch. So I'm used to I'm used to any harassment. (laughs) And it's I mean, once you do, once you wear an eye patch, really, all bets are off. He then writes back. I once wore an eye patch. And I said, I literally that's all it took. I was like, okay, you have my vote. That's it. You wore an eye patch. <laughs> I wore. You me, same same. I literally, and it's funny because I'll tell people they're like, "Why do you like Eric?" I'm like, "Cause he once wore an eye patch." And like anything else, I'm like, "I don't care about his policy." Okay, he wore an eye patch, and so, it really it delighted me that he was so real that he said, "Yeah, no, I I yeah. totally get it." And I was like, "Okay," it it just to me, you know, I, he's very. It was yeah, it was beautiful. It's a beautiful
0: moment. He's he's. I, I've met a few of the candidates, and, and nothing against them or you they're all I think they're all decent people. Eric is a is a very genuine yeah. He's just very personable, very like and, you know, I mean, like I'm waiting for Corey Booker to wear two eye patches now. Just I would love oh my God,
1: I'd vote for him. He's like I literally can't see <laughs> anymore. I'm wearing two eye patches gonna hurt the one that so you're really if you wear
0: two like, one eye patch on top of the other. I mean, you never know. Oh. It could be
1: and it wasn't, a, and uh, by the way, it wasn't at a time where it was like cool to wear one where, you know, people kept asking me, Did you bedazzle it? I said, No, I was so young and my cool. parents were not into that. So they got me these like adhesive brown ones that was, it was horrible. There was nothing attractive about it. And then I had lazy on me other eyes. So then I had more eye. It was horrible. Uh, it was
0: nothing. Attractive. The only time it was cool to wear was like the 1500s if you're like on a sloop in the Caribbean. Exactly. But beyond that, I think. I think those get those days are winning, but that's why I Yeah,
1: it's it's not something I would have put on my J Day profile. Let's just say that.
0: You're not, you're not bringing it back.
1: You know, I'm going to be, like, single. I need someone single, funny, and someone who wears an eye patch because, you know, we would look really cute together. Uh, yeah, no. Never, ever.
0: Someone who can respect my lack of depth perception.
1: <laughs> well, someone who doesn't look for motor skills in their partner. If that's what you need, I'm your girl. I was also in a class, by the way, called Special Gym, which you would never call that in real life because I had no motor skills oh, at the same time. And so, literally, I would just spend... It was like every Wednesday and Friday, they would take me out of math class, which is why I can't do math, and they'd make me throw balls against walls to improve my motor skills. And I would, you know, wrap like wham, like a big rubber ball against a wall, and then it would just like hit me in the face. And I was like, I don't like this. It was like I was playing dodgeball with myself, it was horrible
0: and leaving
1: apparently yeah so yeah anyway i was I, back to you what i talked about in the beginning and this is a horrible segue because i'm going to get like serious and it's horrible i went from literally hitting myself in the face with a yeah. ball to this one of the things that i really adore about you and i just admire is that you you have a true commitment to social activism and to public service and one of the things that's that you advocate about has nothing to do with the Russian stuff is just, you've been a very vocal loud voice for sexual assault and rape victim advocate. You've advocated for survivors in such a big, bold, beautiful way. And I would love for you just give people a little background on why this is so, this resonates for you and truly. And I know we joke around all the time, like literally you can tell how we chat, like we always joke around, but I've, I've told you over and over again, it's, to me this everything you've done for the government everything you've done with Russia it's amazing and you've you've had such a good Im, you know impact you're, you're it's when you're the work that you're doing here and the voice that you're giving to survivors that's that to me is like your ticket to heaven it's like a thumbprint that you're leaving on the world it's truly amazing
0: That's very is here you know to say that i really I, i'll I'll be a silent really you appreciate that um you know i think The best way to put it is, um, I was just talking to a gentleman um, earlier today, and, you know, I I think that this country with Trump, we've seen just how fractured it is. And I think that a lot of people, you know, if you're not a woman, if you're not a person of color, um, if you're, and and no, nothing wrong with them, and, and, but like, if you're a, a rich white man, you're living in a country where the system is designed to work for you. And what I found is that anyone else, you know, look, the, what I say is that we have to work twice as hard for half the respect. And it's just it's the truth. And it's just, you know, um, having two kids, I, I, I hope that it, at least they can get the three-quarters of the respect. But I know it's never going to be one-to-one. It's just a long way to go. And when it comes to sexual assault, and you know, what I found is it started with a very simple um, uh, activity. We're just trying to figure out, looking at a particular district, how many of the reported rates were tried by the county. And what we found is we couldn't, we could see the county numbers, but the county presumably includes you know, other districts. So if there's 120 rates in this district and there's 80 that, provide, that are processed by the county, which show those 120 were processed, we couldn't answer that. And that became this exercise to look into, into this from an intelligence officer from a data standpoint. And we started to realize that, my God, there's just all these areas where um, steps from reporting to taking the report to filing the report, to signing it to the detective to investigating, to rape to, to the prosecution, to prosecuting, deciding, declining to charge or deciding down downgrade the charges, to the conviction, to the you know person being released. But there's all these bureaucratic steps. And what we found, Emily, that really upset me, genuinely upset me, was that bureaucracy is is awful. Um, and in many cases, the survivors are being re-victimized in the fact that they were then expected to really act as almost project managers to make sure that their investigation, once they come forward, if they chose to come forward, was then pushed to that, you know, the rape tests pro- were uh, processed, but the results were retained, that prosecutors didn't downgrade charges, that if they did, there was an explanation, um, so on and so forth. And if you think about the time that that, besides the psychological poll, you know, for a lot of people who are uh, working or who don't have foreign means, that is a huge barrier for them to do that. And so they would report and then have to come in and testify and to push the detective to, to at, you know, ask the crime lab. The, there's just so many cases where, for uh, instances, where cases just drop because um of bureaucracy and so we wanted to address that by some of this idea of procedural justice and really something I, I want to push forward on the national level now um, but this idea that you know bureaucracy can in many cases be an impediment and certainly if you're someone who's not of means who doesn't have the resources um, to sit on an investigation a lot of times justice is denied for no other reason than bureaucracy and lack of uh, of just commitment. To, to resolve it. And it's frustrating. It's just not the way the system is supposed to
1: work. Well, it's interesting, because I think people, we all saw it, especially women. I mean, obviously, it's not a great time for women for women right now with, with this administration, and we're you know pushing and trying, and Me Too and all that. But with when Kavanaugh was going through his hearings, you know, there yeah. was, it, it was infuriating to me, all these men who were saying, well, why didn't she report it earlier? Why didn't you do it earlier? And people have no idea. Also, no survivor has any responsibility to do anything. She doesn't have to do okay. it. She owes nothing to anybody. She just needs to take care of herself. That's the only thing. And if she does the step forward, she can do it whenever the fuck she wants. And that always drove okay. me crazy because that was what they would always you know, go to. But I don't think... I think why I'm impressed that you're doing this is because you're pointing that out. You're pointing out these obstacles because it's not just so easy to go, Hey, yes, this happened to me. It isn't. Then they're out. Then it's a road to hell that a lot of these women have to go through in order to get justice in order to actually hold someone accountable for what they did. And besides going through that hell, they are getting re-victimized. If it goes to trial, then somebody is saying, we don't believe you. And for, Many, many, many survivors. That's the big thing. I won't be believed.
0: And exactly. and, it, and and you know what, Emily? Just to, just yeah. one thing to add on to that. Just, just even before it gets to trial, I mean, just to get, I mean, there you go to any state out there, and you look the backlog of rape kits. I mean, you talk about the statute of limitations. In many cases, people are denied justice, or even even a yeah. trial, because the, the rape kits are sitting. Uh, there was a case here in Seattle where. There was a, a fifteen or sixteen-year-old girl who was raped, assaulted, and the rape kit sat on, uh, in the lab for twenty years. And they finally processed it, and
2: they
0: it was a serial rapist, so they just arrested and, and, oh. and had have been tried for other things, but not before he had, you know, added more victims. And so, even before you trial, to be a woman and, and or to be be someone who has to now take on. Of that. You're the victim of something horrible, but you've got to push to make sure that like the lab is processing your rape the that detectives are following up with the lab. Like that, you know. Besides the psychological thing, you know, if you're someone who is again, you know, an hourly worker, um, how do you take off from work to push people? It's just it's it's so unfair. It's just so patently unfair. Oh, so,
2: um, uh,
1: but people know. don't think about that. People don't think about no. Uh, why don't they do it? Because oh yeah, they're supporting a family and taking off all that it's time it's means it. that they can't feed their children.
0: Yeah, or they can't work, and they, they have work. And they'll lose able. their
1: job, and then they they. What do they do? They go to their
0: boss and say, uh, "Can I take a day off to?" So, yeah, it it it, it is, and, and what I feel though, Emily, is that, um, you know, this is the time we talk about Eric and Eric and, and others. Like I think that this is a time to really push change and what i've seen uh is that we need to have a country where it doesn't and again it's not against um you know white men i don't want to single them out or say that they've done anything wrong but this is a system that is if you're not that if you're if you're part of the lgbtq if you're a child if you're poor if you're a woman if you're a minority you know this is not a country where a lot of the systems work for you you're uh, my goodness, we were just talking about like test prep. You know, yeah. uh, if, if you're uh, uh, coming from a you know a family in poverty and you're worried about making rent and putting food on the table, you may don't have, maybe don't have money to take you know test prep courses for the SAT. You are you have you know these very rich families who are paying to get into college. And a right? about... exactly. Yeah. it's and and you know this is a system that needs to change and. I know this maybe sounds a bit grandiose, but it's like, this is the how to do it. And I think, I hope that people realize that, you know, if this is going to be a country that truly is equitable, that we need to have systems that work for everyone, all Americans, right? And I said, maybe so it sounds quaint, but like, God is not what's supposed to be. And
1: I love how you think. And I it isn't. just am so jaded. I, I <laughs> I, I truly do hope you're right, and I try to re- retain some optimism. I, it's hard because I spend way too much time watching the news and on Twitter, and I get, you know, extremely depressed. But I hope that you're right, and I hope that this election, this new one, will will bring forward people who can start affecting that kind of change because I think we started to see it, you know, with health care and with, and with the LGBTQ community under Obama and just – we saw change really happening, where people who were underrepresented were finally feeling represented. Were finally not feeling as marginalized as they were before. And we've gone; the pendulum has swung so far that I'm I'm really I, I hope that you're right, and I hope it hasn't swung so so far that you know we're not going to see that kind of movement. Well, look,
0: there, I think there there are going to be people that are just never going to change, and you know we have to keep moving forward. It's just. Uh, it's just the way it's going to be. This country is changing demographically. I mean, just the numbers are there. And, you know, we can't be... It's like, I feel like we're turning into Iraq where there's a majority, you know, set uh, Sunni and Shia and the, the minority overrules the majority and eventually, you mean, look what happened. That completely collapsed. We can't... You know, we have to have representation that is of, uh, of the demographic this country is and the ideas this country is. And it can't just be, you know, pro-life and no gun control and, you know, no ideas of equity. Things have got to change, so hopefully they will, and I, I think it's a, you know, I just hope people, the best thing they can do, people ask about stopping Russia and what can Mueller do, and I think the best thing they can do is, is, is vote. Vote. I mean, I, to
2: that's what like, I tell everybody. Go I out there and vote. vote.
1: I tell them, vote their ass off. I also tell my, all my nieces who are not who are still in junior high and high school, I'm like, run for the White House, make a run for the White House, and they are so annoyed with me. Yeah. They was like, take it down a <laughs> Emily. I'm like, I told you to run for the White House, so like, can you seriously? Why are you running already? Come on! I know they're so annoyed by one niece ran was gonna. <laughs> she was one of her friends was gonna run for student council, and then there was somebody else that was running. I was like, you, you need to vote for your conscience and who like has your who really. Represent your interest. She's like, I'm in sixth grade. Can you just? I just want a longer lunch. You like, Could, can but Tina said we get Coke,
2: right? Yeah, longer
1: lunch. <laughs> and it was funny because I think the person. Oh, it was somebody named. This is totally an aside. Somebody named Logan. And I was like, you know what? And just because it's a dude, you don't have to do that. Just you don't know, have to do it. And he shouldn't get all this power. <laughs> I start going on and on about how these men, and it starts young in sixth grade. And literally, it's all through Instagram chat that I'm telling her this. And I'm sure she's like, oh, my fucking God. So I'm going off on Logan. And he's doing this. He's doing that. And finally, she writes back, um, Logan's right, like a Logan girl.
2: Logan's the girl. And I was yeah. like, well,
1: then, and I said, well, then I support her candidacy. And if she would like, I can write her a letter of recommendation. And please don't tell Logan, and please don't tell your parents that we had this Instagram chat. I'm a, do you know how to delete chat messages, don't you? She's like, yes, Aunt yeah, Emily. And she's like, you know, I delete all of your chats anyway because you curse a lot. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot I do that a lot. So.
0: Oh, okay. I, uh, listen, can I, can I leave you with one funny story yes, before we...
1: before we depart. Uh,
0: yes, yeah, about kids, It better so be
1: funnier than your... Wait a minute, is this funnier than that stupid joke you told the Russians?
0: No, I'm not going to Gorbachev. Okay, because that joke, not
1: so, a good joke.
0: No, it's not a good joke, but, you know. So yes. In, in the in, the, in the height of, like, when I was on MSNBC, I remember we were back in New York, and I, I had two wonderful boys, 10 and, 10 and 7, and... Um, they share my sense of humor. Uh, and I'm standing, <clears throat> I'm walking down Broadway, and I feel you know, this guy, hear my name being called. And I turn around, and it's this guy running up, he goes, Oh my God, I watch you on MSNBC all the time. I'm so honored to meet you. Oh. Um, you know, he's talking, he's really nice, very right? sweet, and he wants to take like, a picture, of course. And, and I'm looking at my kids, and I'm like, This like, hell, you know, I they drive a minivan, but you see what, <laughs> see what you know, you guys have he's pretty cool, right? The man leaves, very nice, and, and, uh, my my now ten year old looks at me, pops an eyebrow, and goes, "Oh look, you met your fan." And I was like, stop
2: it. <laughs> well well and the played, point being, son.
0: Well played. The point being is that like you can never let your ego ever run run off you. Like it's really important to stay grounded with this stuff. And kids, <laughs> children have a they've they've have a way of way making way sure yeah. that you yeah. stay
1: so <laughs> grounded. That's pretty amazing. Well, I want to. I have one quick question, then I'm going to end up. Yeah, please. So if they made a – I'm just curious, because people ask me this because I have an unusual backstory, and I know that you now also have a very unusual backstory. Who would you want to play you in the movie version of, you know, your life?
0: So I, I'm supposed to be sworn to secrecy by a boss about this.
1: Okay. Um, I, nobody will hear
0: this. But – It's okay. No, no, of course. No, this isn't going just me and you, right? Yes, you it's know, it. I, so uh, the joke, of course, is, like, I don't care unless the check clears. But it would be really great if it was, you know, someone who was a minority. Like, if they took the story, and, again, I have no control over this. They can rewrite it and, you know, Hollywoodize it. Um, I met Cal Penn.
1: I love Cal yeah,
0: Penn. Yeah. He was great. And we had a nice conversation. I was like, you should totally play this. And I have a picture of him and I. And he's a like, totally. I'm sure it'll never happen. But I I don't really care who it is. I just want it to be someone I who know, at least is you know. On that's my mind. not my
1: question. My question is, if you had a dream cast and you were like, "This is who I want to play me," like,
0: well, obviously Brad Pitt.
1: Okay, see, that's what I was looking for.
0: I just wanted to know. Like, <laughs> I mean, who? because I then know. people would be like, "Is that Brad Pitt or Naveed?" I thought Naveed was. I thought Brad Pitt was. Fine, but right. I didn't realize Naveed was playing himself in this movie. And isn't that what
2: people
1: say? that's what I was asking. It'd be in like in <laughs> Us Weekly, and they'll be like, "Separated at birth," and there'll be pictures that's of, both right. of each other. <laughs>
2: If it's, the only way you can tell
0: is one of them's wearing an iPad.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Too soon. Too soon with the iPad joke. Too soon. Um, I oh. want to just thank you so much. I am. We've talked about doing this, and I was so excited to get to talk to you because, like I said, you're my friend, and it's it's always a delight. And I want people to really hear your story because. The service that your parents did for this country, they were immigrants and they continued to serve in such a really unique, beautiful way and worked with the FBI to give back to this country. And if you go to Naveed's Twitter page, which will give you his handle, you'll see a great letter that Representative Swalwell wrote thanking his parents for their service, which was to me just so special. And that how you continue to serve as well in the military through your work with the FBI and you continue to be such a strong voice about democracy and what, and what the American dream can be. I appreciate that. And so it's really special. And so I was very excited. And also I think you're funny and you make me I appreciate laugh. that. So, you know, there's that too. And so I want everybody, you to, know, yes, continue. I was going to give a speech, can, just, but, can we
0: just end with like, yes. can we end with this? That In the, in the famous words of Lynn Fiskit, I did it for the iPods. I get
1: it to the iPad. Oh, that's, can you please put that on your Twitter handle? I would be really excited. <laughs> or like a small tattoo on your lower back, you know, so it's classy. That would be great. <laughs> There's nothing. I'll give you gold. About. That would be super, super hot. Um, if you all like these <laughs> kinds of conversations that you're hearing right now, you can go to deepstate uh, com and you can download all these amazing podcasts. Also, If you want to also get one of these podcasts, they come out free on iTunes on Fridays. So you could go there. And if you download it and you like it, rate it and review it. It's really exciting for us because then we can share this content with other people who may be interested in this kind of content. So please rate and review it. And if you don't like it, rate and review it and just lie and give us a great review. And you could follow all the happenings on this podcast on Deep State Radio. You can follow them on Twitter. Navid, why don't you give out your handle as well?
0: Thank you. I'm Ooh. Sorry. Uh, this has been great, Emily. I really, really appreciate it. This has been awesome.
1: fantastic. And you're at Navid Jamali on Twitter, correct?
0: Yes, that's right. Navid Naveed Jamali, you can follow me. That'd be great.
1: And you can also follow me at uh, CIA Spy Girl. I literally had to think about it for a second. I'm at CIA Spy Girl. I, I have know. the least subtle can Twitter it- handle ever. It's not like it's like subtle. It's at CIA can Spy we get uh,
0: Can we get eye patch Spy Girl? Is that taken? Because too taken.
1: soon. God damn it, Naveed. It's too soon. It's still a wound that I lick and and I have shame, deep shame <laughs> about. Uh, it's funny. I'm like, you don't want to talk about something that will keep you grounded. Wearing an eye patch will keep you fucking grounded. Anyway, I'm. <laughs> Thank you again so much. This thank was you. so much fun. And if you guys have questions about the podcast or any of the stories that we tell, please uh, tweet me, tweet Naveed, and we'd be happy to respond to. because I think these are kinds of the good conversations that we should be having and good dialogue and talking about ways to really you know move, move forward. And so thank you all. Thank you for checking this out and talk to you all next week. Bye.
2: Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network,